The Summer Girls by Kirk Goldzer. Mother, Father, Me, and Him. Prologue. I'm not quite sure how to start. It was just so bizarre. But well, here goes. I woke up to the sound of a car door closing. It was barely light and I thought it was much too early for my father to be leaving for work. I lowered my feet to the floor, edged over to the window, and gazed down on the driveway below. A county police car was facing our house with only its parking lights on. I spotted my father speaking with two police officers, one in uniform and the other in a suit. I'm wondering if a neighbor had called in about an intruder, a thief or something. They finished their conversation and returned to their patrol car. Slowly, the automobile backed out of the driveway and drove away. My father re-entered the house and all was quiet. I considered going back to bed, but something just was not right. Why would the county sheriff be here rather than Gudger Knowles, our local sheriff? If it were just a bunch of kids causing a disturbance, the county wouldn't be here. Gudger would. I left my room and quietly walked down the hallway to the top of the stairs. My father was standing by the window in the foyer, staring out. Is everything okay? I asked, breathing through the silence. He was in deep thought and said nothing. I paused for a moment in respect. What's going on? Is everything okay, Dad? Why were the police here? Come down here, son. We need to talk. He slowly sat down on the chair by the window and looked down at his hands. He appeared troubled, but strangely calm. Did something happen to one of the neighbors? He adjusted his robe, crossed his leg, and allowed a slipper on his right foot to dangle, just as he was allowing me to dangle as well. Well, that all depends on what neighbor you're referring to. He seemed clued into something, but taking his time and letting me know. Rainy Ray, he said, speaking through the darkness. Your mother's in a bit of trouble. Mom? What do you mean, trouble? Is she okay? Is she here? No, son, she's not. Well, where is she? What's going on? Rainy Ray, your mother's been arrested. What? For what? Are you kidding me? No, son, I'm afraid I'm not joking. Well, what for then? What, what was she arrested for? Your mother was just arrested for the murder of Victor Rathers. That son of a bitch, I thought, reeling with frustration. They found his body down by the tracks at the bottom of the grade. It's a pretty gruesome sight. He must have really done something really wrong. Well, why do they think Mom did it? That sounds crazy. What was he doing at the bottom of the grade? Mom couldn't even get down there. 
That's what they're trying to figure out. Yep, that's going to be the order of the day. He said, standing up. I'm going to put on some coffee and then we're going to go meet Uncle Bud at the police station up in Hendersonville. They want you to come up there with me too, Rainy Ray. Well, I expected that, I answered louder than I should have. My Uncle Bud was a criminal defense attorney who practiced in Asheville. Thinking about some of the cases he's handled told me that we were in for a big one. Go wash your face, son, and put on a nice shirt and a clean pair of pants, because it's going to be rough around here for a while. Chapter 1 My name is Rainy Ray Holford, and I was one of those Melrose boys. I was nine years old when I caught my first glimpse of the summer girl population invading our town of Melrose, North Carolina. It was as if they were falling out of the sky from some other planet, invading our quiet community with a vengeance. The old folks used to say, there's plenty to go around there, boys, so play nice. Most came by train from Greenville, Spartanburg, and Columbia, but it seemed the majority came from Charleston and along the coast. I'm told it was dreadfully hot in the low country, so they came up here to cool off. But the temperature here went way up, because those summer girls weren't just pretty. They were gorgeous. They came from wealthy families and were usually accompanied by their mother and grandmothers. I don't remember ever seeing any summer boys, and for that matter, I didn't care. All I wanted to see were those pretty girls. Their fathers came up here for a night or two, but soon left after they arrived. They had to tend to their big businesses on the coast. They were from another class of society, wearing their wealth proudly on their forehead as they strode through the town with their noses held high and their defending eye on their offspring. Most had large seasonal homes that were closed during the winter and reopened in the summer. As a rule, the summer girls were not allowed to date the Melrose boys, and we were restricted from going over to their homes. I guess they thought we might spoil their seeds. They were wise. Oh, we might be able to go over there and sit on the swing and have a glass of lemonade with them, but soon their grandmother or mothers would appear on the doorway and say, Come along in, darling. It's getting pretty late. Oh, it might be only 9 or 10 o'clock at night. The only time the community ever saw the summer girls was at the square dances, and that's when both classes came together. During the winter months, Melrose withered down to a boring shell of a town with nothing to do but dream about the summer months when those pretty girls returned. The town folks kept to themselves and pretended to pay little attention to anybody else's business. Fact was, everybody was so tuned into everybody else's business, it was ridiculous. I remember the older kids breaking up with their high school sweethearts in order to be free and clear when them summer girls came back. It was also no surprise to the local girls either. They knew what was in store for them. And for that reason, the Melrose girls resented the summer girls. As I think back on those past summers... I'm convinced that our entire town's population went completely crazy. Everyone was so excited upon their arrival, but so resentful when they departed. On this summer, the excitement level turned explosive, and the resentment became sinful. This was the summer I came of age and discovered manhood. It was also the summer that I learned more about myself than I ever wanted to know. We 
were mountain people with limited education and very little communication with the outside world. My father's name was Wilford Holford, and he was the proud owner of Holford's Grocer, which is right next to the Western Union office in the center of town. And I can't remember not working there. While the summer girls bragged about their worldly vacations, we Melrose boys couldn't relate. If we were not in school, we were working. For as long as I can remember, I worked in my father's store. My father was an average-sized man with a large personality. He was also very kind and even-tempered. He was not a demonstrative person like so many others in town were. He didn't hug everybody that walked through the door and get into their business, he'd leave people to their own. And I believe that people appreciated that about him. The rest of the retailers in town made it a point to be excessively caring about everybody. Every single time they passed through those doors. Most especially, Victor Rathers, the king of caring. How's that beautiful mother of yours? Oh Lord, your daddy's one lucky man to have a woman like that. You know, you're looking pretty good, Rainy Ray. You got a girlfriend yet, Rainy Ray? You know, every time I look at you, you remind me of myself when I was a kid. I love you, Rainy Ray. What the hell did he mean by that comment? Yuck. Every time I saw that man, he told me how much he loved me. My father, on the other hand, was a soft-spoken man with a large face and a wonderful smile. Rarely did I ever see my dad wear anything other than a blue dress shirt under a red vest with a full pocket full of pencils and large ring of keys hanging on his belt. He always wore tan pants and black shoes with thick rubber soles. He was usually running the store from his elevated office, which was built high above the registers. He could watch the entire store from his tower, from the meat department to produce to the cashiers and even out into the parking lot. My mother's name was Elaine, and quite honestly, the most beautiful woman in town. Side by side, my parents looked like the odd couple. She had long blonde hair, which was usually fixed in a ponytail. Everybody said she had a gorgeous figure and a fresh smile. She was taller than my father and was often confused as my older sister. It was weird growing up with a mother like that because she was a true looker. Men used to flirt with her often and it pissed me off. Often I wanted to jump over the counter to smack the shit out of them. I think constantly guarding my mother from the men caused me to become more of a defensive person at a very young age. Well, I guess now is a good time as any to confess to you that my mother was a summer girl, and I'm a direct descendant of the summer girl invasion. Yep, she was a summer girl from an island south of Charleston called Wadmalaw. Her father owned and operated a tea plantation down there. And of course, during the hot summers, her mother would bring her up here to Melrose. She met my father at a square dance and fell for him. Somehow, he talked her into moving to Melrose, claiming that she would absolutely love it here. Well, that didn't quite happen, though, he figured. When she came here, she hated it. I'm told it took her a very long time to adjust. For about a year before she married my father, she lived in her parents' summer home and dated my father during the cold months. After her father passed away, they sold the house and it later became the Melrose Inn.
I would have been born in that house if my father hadn't rejected the idea so much. He claimed that the summer homes were poorly built and not insulated for winter months. My theory was that my father believed that he would become a laughingstock of Melrose had he married a summer girl and then moved into her parents' home. My parents tried to have more kids, but couldn't because she had some sort of infertility problem. My father confessed to me one day that the reason I was called Rainy was because I was conceived during a rainstorm. For many years to come, every time it thundered outside, they'd look out the window and say, Well, here comes Rainy. My mother was the voice of the store and the community as well. She helped with the bookkeeping, worked the registers, and kept a protective eye on my father. In many ways, my mom was the face of the store next to my father's quiet disposition. When I say she kept a protective eye on my father, I meant it. She was usually the one that nabbed the shoplifters and kicked the troublemakers out of the store. When I was 13 years old, few of my friends had ever ventured north of Hendersonville or south of Landrum. The only connection we had with the outside world was Victor Victrola and the Melrose Monitor, which was a small, very opinionated newspaper. When my father was a child, the rest of the world had radios. Melrose didn't even know what they were. It wasn't until Lester Thompson, the owner of our filling station, built one out of spare parts and scared the crap out of the old people. My father told me that people were convinced that Satan's voice was talking through a box. Soon, everybody gathered at the Thompson station and listened to the news of the day and the game of the week. Our town was finally connected to the outside world. There were seven different churches in our community, not counting the black church, which no one counted. That church was in colored town. Everyone went to church back then, because if you didn't, you were considered a sinner, and a world of bad spirits would hunt you down and ruin you for the rest of your life. The Melrose grade was the steepest standard grade railroad track in the country, with a history of train wrecks on the southbound. It was owned by Norfolk Southern Railway as part of the W Line, and most of the townspeople worked for them. Melrose wouldn't even be a town had it not been for the trains, which required a need for manpower to maintain the track systems and help guide the southbound locomotives safely down to Tryon. As kids, we surfed the train cars at the bottom of the grade to the town below us, which was Tryon. We often got a milkshake at a drugstore down there and sometimes caught a movie. And then we'd catch another train heading back up to our boring little town. Rocking was the community sport for not only the kids, but also the adults, even though they'd never admit it. Everyone threw rocks at black kids back then. Those poor kids were rocked every single day they passed by our school. For the record, I only threw one rock at a black person, and I regretted it ever since. I never had an arm for baseball, but on that fateful day my pitch was perfect and a direct hit against the side of Reverend Wainwright's suite daughter's head. It was one of the saddest days of my entire life when I witnessed that little girl falling backwards on those hard steel rails. I remember her screaming as her blood and tears painted her school clothes and her friends pulled her further down the tracks. None of my peers seemed to care about my dreadful crime on that day. Even the sheriff chuckled under his breath as he drove me over to Reverend's house to deliver my apology. You got a good arm there, boy. You hit that little nigger girl dead on. You know that? You should try out for our summer league. Tears of sorrow 
poured from my soul as I gazed at the terrible cut on the left side of that girl's face. But as she stood next to her father, she seemed to be more concerned about my well-being. Ironically, at the complete displeasure of the sheriff, the preacher seemed to pity me. He took my face in his warm and truly caring hands and said, You better than that, Rainy Ray. You know that boy? I said, You are much better than that. The preacher killed me with kindness that day as we drove away from Blacktown and back to the normal side of town. Hattie May later told me that she and her sisters had planned a counterattack with their own arsenal of stones until her father, in his kind way, convinced them not to. I've never been able to distance myself from that guilt as I walked those lonely tracks down Melrose Grade. The Holford family was one of the few families that were not kin to the two other dominant families in Melrose. Until the summer girls invaded our town, the females and the other two families were our only hope of producing any future offspring. Upon taking my first square dance class when I was in the seventh grade, I discovered girls and I was awestruck. But it wasn't until the summer following my ninth grade year that I discovered women. And this is where my story begins. Chapter 2 Jonathan Roy was my best friend back then. His father was a local surgeon and his grandfather was a Methodist minister. While I was an only child, the rest of the families in Melrose had an average of seven offspring. John was one of seven kids, and their household was always alive with excitement. My house always seemed quite boring to me, so I couldn't wait to be over there. John and I spent as much time together as possible, because he had such a big house and plenty of things to do with a million brothers and sisters, it seems. He had BB guns, go-karts, tractors, and more food and snacks than anybody could imagine. His parents always seemed to give us full reign of whatever we wanted to do except smoke cigarettes. If John's dad ever caught us smoking, John would catch holy hell. John and I also had a secret world of our own, and that was on the rooftops of downtown. We'd run across the rooftops on the buildings on the main street, snatching Christmas lights and exploding them on the streets below. Most of the buildings were connected in one big line, and few required a running jump to get to it. We knew more about the rooftops downtown than anybody in town. Often we'd enter those buildings through unknown hatches and spy on the shop owners. Once we watched the sheriff drink himself silly on corn liquor, Another time we saw more than we ever bargained for when we peeked through the base of the chandelier at the woman's dress shop, an eye full of a 230-pound Miss Craft, who was also 78 years old, was quite enough for us. Ironically, we always started at the first building on the south side of town, which was the police station, and there we would easily make our way down to the very last building. At that point, Victor's business, which was called Railhouse Diner, was catty corner and across the street. Once, after we made sure that the sheriff was gone, we pried open a maintenance panel and slid down a water pipe to the floor of the police station. 
I surveyed the vacant vault while John was bold enough to snatch a pair of handcuffs from the supply cabinet. So about the vault. The police station had once been the Melrose Savings Bank, and the original vault was later turned into a cell. The vault had earned a reputation as being not only the most secure jail in North Carolina, but also the most terrifying. The vault was also quite large and able to accommodate up to a dozen inmates at a time. Often federal prisoners traveling by train on their way to St. Louis spent a night in the vault. I'm sure those layover evenings were times those prisoners never forgot. The vault door was heavily fortified with six-inch holes cut in the center and rectangular slot for food trays. The wall was made of 18-inch concrete panels. When they closed those doors to the vault and locked them, some prisoners were known to scream all night long. The next building over was Western Auto, where they sold everything from bicycles to lawnmowers to train sets to Barbie dolls. John and I found a way in there once, but barely touched the floor when we realized that the owner left his two German Shepherd watchdogs there overnight. Johnson's candy store was our gold mine. Now, John and I never considered ourselves burglars. We were more like penny candy thieves. I always grabbed a pocket full of malted milk balls and a nice supply of Biddle honey. John went for the beef jerky and bottled cream soda. And then up to the rooftops we went for our banquet. We had our own feast on the top of our town as we watched the town crazies act out on the street below. Usually, we'd watch Gudger bring in drunks from the pool hall, and once saw the minister from Fox Mountain Baptist Church get hauled in with a prostitute. The day school let out, I spent the night at John's house and got ready for the big day at the lake. We woke up to a beautiful summer morning. We grabbed our towels and bathing suits and jumped on my bike, John on the back and me on the handlebars, and pedaled our way to the water. We were on our way to Lake Summit for the first swim of the year and a brand new batch of summer girls. Lake Summit was a beautiful lake where everyone except the black population was welcome. Large summer homes dotted the shoreline, each mostly owned by the wealthy summer families and only a few belonging to the town folks. A roped-off swimming area with the backdrop of rock mountains painted the beauty of those rich summer memories. Water slides were there for the pleasure of the kids, and diving platforms were there for the more confident swimmers. Our friends and adversaries were already there waiting for the invasion to hit. They were sporting their winter skin and claiming their summer turf. Some kid got his hand cut in an ice cream sandwich dispenser and was screaming his ass off, while another kid was being stuffed into the back of a police cruiser for stealing someone's bicycle. The same lifeguards had returned from the year before, and we were excited to see them. Jerry Davis, the lead lifeguard, had a body like Tarzan, and he was the best diver at school. His girlfriend, Emmy, also a lifeguard, had a body like Tarzan's Jane, and everybody dreamed that she would swim out and rescue them. John never had hair back in those days. His daddy always shaved off his head at the beginning of every summer, leaving him with an embarrassing white scalp. It never seemed to bother John either. I would have been mortified to start the summer looking like that. The beach smelled of suntan oil, grilled hot dogs, and baked corn cobs. 
as we sat on our beach towels surveying the action around the lake. The Melrose girls camped on the other side of the beach with their eyes glued to us, waiting for their wintertime boyfriends to hook up with the summer girls. One by one, they'd arrive with their mothers in tow. As we sat in our towels with our eyes popping out, it was amazing how beautiful those girls were. While the Melrose girls were so dreary, I explained to John the theory I overheard a man in a store tell another. You know why them summer girls are so damn pretty? No, why? asked the other man. It's because they come from money. They're rich. I thought it was a stupid theory when I first heard that. But when I compared my mom to the rest of the women in town, I sort of agreed. The lifeguards were also aware of the invasion as they oiled up their bodies and flexed their muscles. The lifeguards were doing synchronized dives off the diving boards when two beautiful summer girls, along with their mother, settled down right next to us. We had struck gold as the threesomes laid out their blankets, removed their outer clothing, and displayed their fabulous bathing suits and stunning figures. The mother was tall, a beautiful woman with fantastic legs and striking blonde hair. The two girls appeared to be about our age and were probably not sisters. One was a carbon copy of her mother, while the other one had shoulder-length brown hair and a bit of a tomboy look. The daughter was for me, and the tom girl was for John. Done. While I always considered myself to be a bit cooler than my buddy, John was right on his mark and already making eye contact with the tom girl. I instantly joined in introduction, quickly claiming ownership over the daughter as our Melrose Boy competition advanced on our private camp. Carol was quickly becoming my friend as Jane seemed very interested in John, bald head and all. On that first day of summer, Lake Summit had become Carol Jane Lake for John and me. We were successful in claiming our summer girls, and even the mother seemed to approve. For the next few days, we met Carol and Jane at the lake, us with our white bathing towels, and the ladies with their fancy blankets and umbrella. They even brought lunch, and we got to know them even more, most especially Jane's mother, who was a fountain of information about her disappointing life in Charleston. She described her existence as if she had both loved it and hated it. The mother's name was Martha Middleton Smith, a self-proclaimed blue blood from Charleston and a direct descendant of Henry Middleton. My mother and Miss Martha were both from the low country of South Carolina and each had the same history with Henry Middleton, but so did many others, I considered. When asked what a blue blood was, she described a haughty group of wealthy families with kept names and outdated traditions. Miss Martha continued, I was the belle of the ball, a Bishop England debutante. My family ruled the entire swath of real estate south of Broad Street, and my life growing up on the Battery was both wonderful and wearisome. Miss Martha had one other thing to acknowledge as the five of us sat on the shoreline that day eating fried chicken and watching the activity in the distance. I'm divorced. I'm no longer married. My marriage has been legally dissolved and I'm no longer Martha Middleton Smith. I am now Miss Martha to you boys and it's now my time to live. 
Divorce was unheard of in our Christian community. People stayed together whether they wanted to or not. The only way out of marriage was when either one of them died. I also expect that many couples sat in church on a weekly basis praying that their precious betrothed would soon get their wings. My divorce was a great disappointment to the blue blood families in the large community. Why on earth did Miss Martha leave Hainsworth? What the devil happened to that marriage? Was she having an affair? Did Hainsworth beat her? Martha's such a wild child. Just look at the way she flirts with those men. Would you like to know the truth, boys? Well, I'll tell you the truth. And it's all right, because the girls are very aware of this. He cheated on me. And the sad thing was, I didn't give a damn. You know, we were just married too young. I mean, we were stupid. What do kids know when they get married at that age anyway? I was 19 years old when I got married to that man, for God's sake. While it was unheard of for summer boys to spend the night at the homes of the summer girls, Miss Martha welcomed us in with open arms. I think she thought it was safer to invite us in than have us sneak in through the windows. On our first visit, I was horrified to learn that Pearly Ann Wainwright, the mother of my rocking victim, Hattie Mae, was to be their summer cook and housekeeper. I cringed when I saw Hattie Mae helping her mother in the kitchen, still sporting that noticeable scar on the side of her forehead. I was certain that Pearly Ann was going to confide in Miss Smith about my horrid criminal behavior, and I'd be out the door like a bag of garbage. But thankfully, she never said a word. For the next several nights, John and I reveled in our conquest with the beautiful girls which we were becoming very familiar with. Carol was a beautiful Catholic girl with golden blonde hair, delightfully plump lips, and a cute pug nose. She and Jane were cheerleaders and had the energy to prove it. They attended the very same private school their parents did, and I'm sure were very popular among the boys. Bishop England was the name of their school named after Charleston's first bishop, John England. According to Carol, it didn't matter what denomination you were. If you were accepted in, you became a Catholic. While our town seemed to have more churches than stores, we never even met a Catholic. Our Christian community would never stomach the idea of paying too much attention to a blessed virgin woman. We demanded our faith and prayers to be sent to a white male redeemer. And my father always told us a funny joke about Catholics. He'd say, do you know the difference between Catholics and Baptists? The Catholics would say, they ain't no hell. The Baptists would say, the hell they ain't. Carol and Jane clearly were more educated than we were and much more cultured. You could tell by the way they described things. The year before, they had spent the summer in France and even learned how to speak the language. <laughs> John and I had never been to the ocean, and my foreign language skills were limited to a Spanish class, which I failed twice. Why these girls paid any attention to us was beyond me. We enjoyed dinner with the threesome almost every night, never speaking a word of it to our parents or anybody else. Each day, John and I would joyfully pedal the back roads to their majestic lake house, singing out loud with excitement, We don't care what the neighbors say. We're going to go there anyway. Swing your left hand, lady boy. You people on the side, y'all can clap. Come on, man.
Chapter 3 The first square dance of the summer was held on the first Friday of June at the Melrose High School. John and I were to meet the girls at the dance and we were both excited but highly protected of our prize dates. Melrose was a sea of sharks and the girls were nothing but live bait. Cars were lined up from the police station past the school and beyond to the ball field. The area in front of the gymnasium was packed with people waiting to get in. A poster on the door read, 50 cents for boys, and the girls dance free. When John and I finally made it through the doors of the gym, it was already uncomfortably hot. Anybody who could get on the dance floor were already there, claiming their position in a large circle around the floor, and the room was full of brand new summer girls. Boys and girls alternated one after another. They clung to their partner's hands and danced to the strict orders of Bear Miller, the caller of the dance. Bear was calling the dance, and he was our least favorite. He took his role way too seriously than any other callers. He expected perfection on the dance floor. I personally thought he was a jerk. We learned to dance at the old library when we were just children, so when we approached high school, we'd be ready to come to the big dance. Adults of all ages danced with whomever asked them. It really didn't matter who you were, adult or kid. If you messed up on the dance floor, Bear would call you out on it. He was serious, too. That's why they called him the Bear. Bear had been known to lose his temper and quit mid-dance, walking out and leaving the building altogether. The music would stop and someone would say, Where's Bear? Someone would say, He's done got in his car and left. It really didn't matter anyway because there were so many others in the crowd who could call the dance without losing a step. It was beginning to get hotter by the minute as the dancers twirled to the music of the Green River Boys. Even the girls were sweating as they rushed by us with their perfumed body odor wind. Red River Valley was the one song that had to be played at every single square dance. It was the song that formally kicked the evening into gear. It was the beginning of that very song that John and I realized that we were too late when we spotted the girls already on the dance floor with the sharks. On the other side of the gymnasium, we noticed Miss Martha standing next to the window, looking nothing short of ravishing. She was surrounded by a cadre of male admirers with her long hair up in a French braid. She was wearing a beautiful cotton dress, low-cut silk blouse, and a winning smile. There was our school principal, Doc Jones, desperately trying to engage her in conversation, followed by our banker, Willie Ward. He always wore a three-piece suit, no matter how hot it was. Then, like clockwork, there was Victor Rathers, the proud owner of Railhouse Diner. Well, there's Rainy Ray. How's your gorgeous mother doing? I just want you to tell her hello from me. You're turning out to be a big man these days. I'm going to have to keep an eye on you before you capture one of them summer girls. <laughs> I'm just janking your chain. I love you, Rainy Ray. If Victor was in line for something, Victor usually got it. He'd always act too nice and would never take no for an answer. He always acted as if he was the spokesperson for the church. Whether they gave him that right or not is unknown. His long, narrow face, piercing eyes, and cunning smile sent a different signal to me. 
The huge ring of couples stretched and strained as the music got louder and Bear's orders grew sterner. This was one of the most challenging times for the couples to hang on to their prized dates. For if the circle broke, you'd be on one side of the gym and your date would be on the other side with the sharks. Bear was hanging on to his last nerve as the line finally broke and the dance fell apart. In the distance, we noticed Victor claiming the hand of Miss Martha, and they were back on the floor for the next dance. Our girls were snatched up by Fletcher White and his stupid big brother. Both brutes frowned at us, daring us just to make a move on our girls. Hopefully, it would just be a matter of time before the girls broke away from them, because those two idiots stunk more than anybody else in the town. They sometimes reeked so bad that their teachers had to leave the classroom to keep from vomiting. Now, outside of the gymnasium and down around the ball field was the only place to get to know the summer girls. And let me tell you, the competition there was fierce. It was also very easy to score beer, some corn liquor, and cigarettes. And it was a great setup for problems later in the summer. On this first night, Gudger had to arrest two boys for fighting and take one Melrose woman home to her parents. John and I kicked around there for a while, hoping the girls would come out, but we finally gave up and walked back down the hill towards home. As we reached the train tracks, we heard the girls calling us from the top of the hill, and our hearts raced. We were soon back at Miss Martha's house, relaxing in the dark living room, with Carol and I on the couch, and John and Jane back in the corner on the floor with pillows. We had the entire house to ourselves, each thinking it was time to kiss and make out. Music was softly playing on their expensive radio as we folded into our private romances. At about midnight, we accidentally fell asleep in the arms of our lovers and found out that Miss Martha wasn't even at home. The four of us were in deep slumber when the voice of a female god came raining down on us from the heavens. You boys better get your business and get on out of here. Good God, y'all. It was the housekeeper. Pearly Ann Wainwright, and was she ever upset with us? She was standing directly over me, poking me in the stomach with a broom handle. Hattie Mae was in the doorway, with her eyes wide open, holding the door open for our immediate ejection. I said, you get y'all's skinny asses out of here before Miss Martha comes in and sees you. Good night, nurse. You girls ought to be ashamed of yourself. Now get on up to your rooms before I whip you myself. Good God almighty, Hattie Mae. Help those girls upstairs into their rooms. Oh, my Lord. With only one shoe on and the other tucked under my armpit, we were out the door. A beautiful sunrise was painting the horizon with lavender, pink, and blue watercolor. But John and I found little appreciation in it whatsoever. We were late getting back to John's house, and I had to be at work in about two hours. We were sprinting across the neighbor's yard when my foot got caught up in a metal ladder that was laying in the wet grass. Down I went, face first, and instantly I knew I needed stitches. Blood was flowing from my chin as we continued our desperate race home. It was about a quarter past six when a car came over the horizon and rolled by us. I was applying pressure to my chin with one of my white socks, praying I could stop the bleeding before I got home, when I caught sight of Victor Rathers at the wheel and Miss Martha in the passenger seat. I'm not sure about John, but I turned my head, praying he wouldn't see us. What was Victor doing with Miss Martha at this time in the morning, and why on earth was she with him? 
My mind was spinning with thoughts. Victor was a married man and a pillar of our community, even though many in the community crossed the street whenever they caught sight of him. John and I had just caught Victor in a bad spot with Miss Martha, and that was to be John's and my closely guarded secret. Dr. Roy met us at the driveway as we reached their home. He was sporting a dark suit and a bow tie, and he was on his way to the hospital for an early morning surgery when he saw us. It didn't help matters much when a pack of cigarettes fell out of John's shirt pocket and landed at Dr. Roy's feet. Now, I know your daddy, Randy Ray, so I'm going to ask you this once. Were you smoking cigarettes, too? Now, I'm not a liar, but I was that morning when I looked him dead in the eye and said, No. John's dad took me into the wood shop and gave me five stitches in the chin and sent me on my way. John, on the other hand, was grounded for two weeks. Getting back to Victor, I could never understand what Amy Rathers ever saw in Victor. She was a very pretty woman that seemed so mismatched for him. They had no children and always seemed happy together. Perhaps that was the reason why. Amy earned a liberal arts degree from Wesleyan College and worked for the town hall as a tax collector. Victor didn't even make it out of the ninth grade when he took over his father's diner. Amy was an attractive woman with a peaceful smile, chestnut hair, and a pretty figure. Along with Victor, the couple volunteered for everything. It was well known that Victor had a prior drinking problem, but he claimed to be sober for the last eight years. He claimed God saved his life. Because of that, he tried to convert everyone he encountered. I always imagined that Jesus, in his infinite mercy, couldn't quite do the infinite with Victor because he was one hard case. Most people couldn't take Victor's bulldozing personality, but the town tolerated him mainly because of his charming wife and the fact that together they helped the town out a lot. If he wasn't talking about religion, he'd be talking about anything else. I've never heard a person talk so loudly about nothing, but when his discussions pertaining to religion became threatening, that's when the church decided to send him on his way. Suddenly, the town was seeing less and less of them as a couple, and more and more of Victor alone. He was also becoming unkempt, with an ever-increasing beard that creeped up the side of his face toward his dark eyes. He was becoming loony-looking. Victor had become an embarrassment to the inner circle of the church, and the church elders suddenly blocked his seat on the table. And for Victor, that was a shock. One Sunday after church service, the pastor and two rather large church members held out a hand to Victor and told him to leave the church entirely. Victor could not accept his rejection from the very same church that he was baptized in as a baby. It was a real blow to Victor, and understandably so. When I heard that Victor was thrown out of the church, I felt bad for him, and most especially for his wife. I also began to look at churches differently then, because Victor really had a problem, and they offered no help, prayers, or guidance to him. They just kicked he and his wife to the street as if they were dogs. There we go. Sweeten your opponent lady, boys.